It's Sunday, and you know what that means. And this is the Dick Morris Show, presented by the Patriot Gold Group. Here's Dick Morris on 77 WABC. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Hey, Dick Morris, what'd you think of that debate? The, the bake. <laughs> what do you think about baking? Uh, what do you think about the debate? Yeah, I, I thought that the, uh, it was captured in this song. But where are the clouds? Quick, send in the clouds. Don't bother. They're here. I think it, comes it from, though, Dick. should have happened. You know, I listen, I understand. That comes from uh, the circus. When something goes wrong in the circus, they oh, yeah. send in the clowns yeah. to distract the audience. Okay, well, That's what it, it, worked. it worked. It worked. <laughs> um, so I think that the debate was, was absurd, was ridiculous. It was stupid. Uh, to have a debate without Donald Trump is, is ridiculous. And let's go back here. This is a power play by the Republican National Committee that wants to uh, demonstrate that it is in charge Rona, Rona Daniels, who is the chairman of it, is in charge. She's the boss. She runs the party. The party runs, the committee runs the party, and the candidates are kind of the hired help that come in every four years. <laughs> and uh, Donald Trump wasn't having any of this. Rona McDaniels said, you shall sign a loyalty oath. And Trump said, go screw yourself. She said, you shall sign an oath that you will never do another debate that is not sponsored by the RNC. And Trump said, oh, really? <laughs> and they said, Brett Baer, who hates you and savage you in the one-on-one interviews, he'll be the moderator. And uh, and the other woman, what's her name? Uh, the, 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 the woman moderator. Not Megyn Kelly. No, no, no Daniel. No. She's, who is also not very bright. Uh, she was going to be the co-host. And Trump said, no, not, not for me. And they said, Fox News is going to sponsor it. And uh, Trump said, no, I'm not going to go with Fox News. It's run by Murdoch, and Murdoch wants to kill me every chance he gets. Right. So he said, no, I'm not going to play ball with you. I'm not going to be part of it. Good for him. And McDaniel went right ahead and set, scheduled the debate and held the debate. Trump didn't show up, and nobody watched. You know, in, in the Vietnam era, we used to say, suppose they gave a war and nobody came. <laughs> well, that, that's what's happening here. Nobody came to the party. And those that did show up were the understudies, the rejects, the B team, at right. best, the C team. And who on earth would watch that? Now, within the rejects, which is the, the, the genre of the debate, Ramaswamy uh, was the biggest clown. And uh, he had that, that grin on his face all the time, that toothy, absurd grin. <laughs> that really was just like a kid in the third grade that had just sent a... Uh, a spitball to somebody. And that was the, the grin you got in return. Really? It was a juvenile, right. infantile kind of thing. And then he gave up these proposals that are even worse. He says we should cut off aid to Israel and we should give Israel only the same amount of aid we give to the Arab countries. So we give Syria a dollar, we give Israel a dollar. We give Iraq a dollar, we give Israel a dollar. We give Saudi Arabia a dollar, we give Israel a dollar. Disregarding the fact that they're the aggressors, Israel is the nation defending itself. They're the dictatorships, Israel is the democracy. They're anti-American, Israel is pro-American. And yet he says there should be complete parity in the aid that we give them. Amazing. Huh? And he completely overlooks the fact that the reason Israel gets three million bucks, three billion bucks a year in aid from the United States was because in 1978, Jimmy Carter negotiated the Camp David Accords and Begin was there for Israel, Menachem Begin, and uh, Arafat for the Arabs. And uh, at the end of the session, Begin said, Mr. President, you have gotten us to give away the Golan Heights, give away the Gaza Strip, and give away a good portion of the West Bank. We do not have defensible borders anymore. Anybody that wants to walk over us can just come in. And Carter said, okay, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll give you $3 billion a year in military aid for as long as you shall live. And Egypt and Sadat said, hey, what about me? And Carter said, I'll give you in $3 billion as well. 
And for the last, uh, what is it, 45 years, we have given them each $3 billion. Last year we gave Israel 3.3, 300 extra for the Iron Dome. Mm. And, uh, and that's, that was the basis of peace in the Middle East. And now this moron comes along and he says, I'm going to pull the rug out from under it. You're no longer getting your $3 billion. What do you think his strategy is? I, I just that? think he's stupid. I don't think he knows anything that's going on. <laughs> I think that he's an idiot. I think really? that he came in and he said, oh, $3 billion of foreign aid to Israel. I'm against foreign aid. Why should we give a rich nation like that foreign <laughs> aid? They have a great army. Why do they need our aid? And he didn't know anything about the background of it because he wasn't there. And he never read it. He didn't do his homework. He's just a billionaire who figures he can waltz in and say what he wants. And then he keeps talking. And he says that we are are committed to aiding Taiwan to keep it independent of China. And Taiwan is now the monopoly, has a virtual monopoly on on computer chips. Uh, and, uh, he said, okay, we'll continue to aid Taiwan because we don't want these semiconductor chips to be, uh, we don't, we don't want to be cut off from them. But as soon as we develop our domestic ability to make these chips, we're going to stop aiding Taiwan. We're going to cut them off, which means you turn over 30 million people to communist China. You let China erect a coastal barrier, uh, a line really from Japan, to Taiwan, to, from Japan to Korea to Taiwan to the Philippines, a perimeter uh, that permits them to dominate the Pacific Ocean. Wow. And uh, he just does it without understanding the consequences of that. So will this guy stop coming in and pretending he's ready to be president and ready for prime time? Right. Now, the one thing he did that was good is he talks about how everybody else on the stage uh, is just, to some degree, rather a phony. I mean, he comes in and he says, you all are bought and paid for because they take PAC money. Well, everybody takes PAC money, and the only reason he doesn't is because he's a billionaire. But this guy no more belongs on the debate stage than than any clown, any of the send-in-the-clowns we just <laughs> talked about. Right. And uh, this that debate stage makes you graphically understand what the Republican Party would look like without Donald Trump. Right. Those are the guys you would have to deal with. Chris Christie, uh, DeSantis, who's lost three quarters of his support in the lessons, announced his candidacy, says something that you're riding high before you announce. Then you announce and you fall off a cliff. I think there's something wrong with your presentation when that's the situation. Mm. So we don't want to have to be with that Republican Party. We want Donald Trump. Now, my advice to him is, is that when they held the next debate, which will be at the Reagan Library in California, which the which hates Trump and has done everything they can to undermine him, that he boycotts that as well. But then I don't think he should just boycott it. I think he should have a town hall meeting uh, on uh, on television with any network that will cover it, and they all will, and uh, and have his own thing and tell everybody go watch any debate that you want. I think it's really cool that. Uh, Hundreds of millions of people reportedly watched his interview with Tucker Carlson, and only 12 million watched the debate. So I think that really showed. Wait, how many up. for Tucker and how many for? Uh... They they don't know, but they claim say about 200 million watched wow. the Tucker Carlson interview. Wow! It broadcast the next over in over the sure. next week, sure. and uh, the 12 million watched the debate. Wow! It puts it in its place. This is Dick Morris for the uh, Dick Morris Show with Doug DePiro, my sidekick here, and it's sponsored by the Patriot Gold Group. When we come back, there is a very key demographic that is turning against Joe Biden. He's, his base are blacks, Hispanics, single women, and young people, and he's about to lose one of the four. With crime running rampant in New York, you need to keep yourself and your family safe. Obtaining your concealed carry firearm licenses can be difficult and time-consuming. That's where MyFirstPistol.com comes in. They'll help you secure your concealed carry license. If you're looking for a pistol, premise, rifle, or shotgun license, call 347-559-7052. 347-559-7052. You must have a valid firearm license issued by the NYPD to purchase, possess, or shoot a handgun or pistol in 
NYC. Hi, it's Ernie Anastas. You know, your thoughts can affect how you feel, and how you feel can impact your thoughts. Addressing your mind and body connection is the key to improving your overall wellness. Bergen Newbridge Medical Center is the largest hospital in New Jersey, providing comprehensive, equitable, compassionate, and high-quality emergency inpatient and outpatient medical care, plus mental health services and substance use disorder treatment. The Bergen Newbridge team can address your total health needs in one convenient location. Call 201-225-7130 for an appointment or newbridgehealth.org. This is the Dick Morris Show, presented by the Patriot Gold Group on 77 WABC. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right, here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. So there is one key group that Joe Biden needs to win, which is the under 30-year-old voter. And in the 2020 election, 60% of them voted for Joe Biden. But a new poll by John McLaughlin, Trump's pollster, and my good friend, shows that Biden's support has dropped from 60% to 53% in this demographic. And Trump is up six points. So the margin that Biden has over Trump among under 30 voters has dropped by 13 points. That is a major, major seismic shift. Now, that that is incredible that that change is taking place. And the reason is the economy. When we asked people, do you think the economy is getting better or getting worse? By 25 points, people under 30 said it's getting worse. Most of the country thinks it's getting worse, but they especially think it's getting worse. And 42% of the under 30-year-old voters said they are struggling to get by with inflation in the economy. Another 41% said they're not struggling, but things are tight. And 19% said there's no problem. So they are being driven away from Biden by the economy. And even though their generation dislikes Trump and talks about how great the new left is and the woke mob, they continue really to run against the wind. And that's a very significant base. It really means that of four props holding up the Democratic Party, the blacks, the Hispanics, single women, and young people, he's losing the young people. And he's losing them because of an issue that he can't fix. He can always change. Trump can always move his views on abortion. Uh, he can always be much more effective in the outreach to blacks and Latinos. But Biden can't turn the economy around. And it's having a very distinct impact on young voters. Remember that for them, the economy is not just a, not just a statistic. A bad economy means they can't buy a home. They have to continue to live in mom's basement. A bad economy says that they can't, uh, buy a car, that they can't get a job, that they can't really begin their lives. And, uh, this this is something that Biden has visited upon them, and they do not take lightly. They're very upset about it, very mad about it. Now, there's something else that's going on, and uh, and I want to talk about it. I mentioned to you that uh, the left is imposing what they call ESG requirements on for invention, investment of pension funds. And what they're saying is that when you invest pension funds and other fiduciary funds, you do not consider the return on investment to be paramount. You can accept a lower return on behalf of the retirees who entrusted you with their money. And, uh, but you have to put the money into an ESG fund, stands for, uh, um, environmental social governance fund, which means good causes climate change, anti-racism, um, uh, all kinds of all kinds of causes that the left loves. And if you put the money into those, it can accept a lower return on the investment. You don't have to make as much money as you can because you're doing such good in funding these causes. 
So you may have to eat dog food when you retire, but at the very least, uh, you're going to be doing social good, and that's going to be fine. Well, the major fiduciary, the major investment house that invents, invests money for the elderly and for the retired and for just ordinary workers is BlackRock. They, they have over $3 trillion under management. And they really were the founders of this ESG movement. They believed in it. They started to do it before any other company did. And the bulk of the funds invested in ESG come through BlackRock. And I'll be praised, the uh, BlackRock has decided no longer to structure its investments based on ESG. It put it up, it's putting it up to a vote of the shareholders who will not go along with earning less money. And they will cut off the ESG to investment funds, the first company to abandon that. So, so basically the left has been trying not just to structure what the government spends money on, not just to structure where the government gets its tax revenues from, but to structure what each of us does with our own money. And uh, the ESG investments uh, became the fundamental part of that. And it is wonderful, wonderful to see BlackRock turning against it. <clears throat> a couple of weeks ago, I, we did a show where we talked about how the left is losing and uh, more and more people are listening to music and buying products that are contrary to the woke movement. Uh, Bud Light is a very good example of that and uh, all kinds of other stuff. And uh, this change by BlackRock is huge. It really means that billions will no longer flow to these ESG investments. But, but do you think that's a monetary decision they made right there? No. Or you think it's uh, – Oh, a monetary decision, yeah. Of course. Well, originally of course. they went against their monetary sure, interest right, by right, doing this. right. Now they're going back to them. So it's not like they had a hard oil all, all of a sudden and they think uh, what's right and wrong. It's no, it, it, it's, it's that they feel that it's very important that they give what their shareholders want. Sure. And they're no longer hypnotized by the woke movement. Good. They are no longer following that agenda. What do you think the percentage of the woke movement is in people? 10%, 20 you think it's a big percentage? Well, the Democrats can count on about 40% of the vote. But a wow. lot of that are black or Latinos who are not in it for the movement. So the white vote for the Democrats, the base, is probably about 35%. Well, and uh, many of them are not woke, but still it's, that gives you a rough approximation of sure. it. Um, so I'm very glad that that's going on. I'm very glad that they're turning away from the woke investments. Now – Let's go to uh, Al and Yonkers. Yonkers, hey. Hey, Yonkers. Yeah. Y-O. Good afternoon, uh, Dick and Doug. Uh, you know, uh, Dick, I just want to agree with you. I think the takeaway from uh, Vivek the other day in the debate was his uh, position on his support, uh, continued support from America, especially Republican administrations with Israel. I mean, today we see uh, Israel has so much... Uh, to worry about. We have Iran, which wants to continue to destabilize the Not Middle East. Not destabilize, wipe out Israel. Yeah, off the map. Exactly. Push the button. Yeah. And uh, the I think his, you know, his position there had, uh, you know, hurt him that night in the debate. Also, uh, in regards to Taiwan and Ukraine. Yeah. Well, I think that anybody who comes in who's kind of new and fresh uh, is attractive in this environment. But then you drill down, and the guy doesn't know anything. Now, listen, I'm not going to be against him because I disagree with him about certain issues. I'm against him because he doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. For example, when he says that the Ukraine is just a border dispute and that we have no vital interest in it, he's ignoring the Budapest Agreement, which we and Yeltsin for Russia uh, signed which said that we will guarantee the borders of the Ukraine against any invasion. We can't just disregard that, and he is disregarding it, in saying he wants to end the aid. You can't disregard our commitments to Israel. You can't disregard our commitments to Taiwan. And this guy comes waltzing in from no place and says this is the new world, according to Vivek. 
and I just don't go with it. This is the Dick Morris Show, sponsored by the Patriot Gold Group. Let's go to George in Rockland. Hi, George. Hi. Good morning, gentlemen. So that's my take here. Okay. What I like uh, to be the next debate, that it would be uh, run by two networks, uh, one WABC and one Newsmax. Mm-hmm. And let me explain why I like WABC. Because as radio, I believe the reach is so much greater than any uh, TV can be, even internationally. And as such, uh, the exposure would be so much greater, yeah. and it would work well. And well, I- you may get half your wish. I think maybe the TV station you mentioned might be in on, on getting it together. Uh, but, uh, but, I do. but the main debate I'd like to see next is Trump against Biden. Enough of this fighting within the Republican Party. How many more points does Trump need to get in the poll before you get the point that he's going to win the nomination, that he's the Republican nominee? And I think everything you do at this point, particularly Christie going out there and savaging Trump, is helping the Democrats, is helping Biden. Go to Andrew and Stanhope. Hi, Andrew. Hey, what's up, Dick? Another thing with the youth vote moving away from Biden is they realized they were scammed with the student loan debt forgiveness. Right. And, um, you know, they shouldn't have bought into that lie in the first place. But I remember when I was a young college student, when your former boss, Bill Clinton, he did the same with health care. We're going to. So I was, you know, suspicious, but I see how they get sucked in. But that was another way. What do you think of the plan that Biden is pushing, uh, which is that you have to pay a certain percent of your income back uh, if you make uh, more, than, more than a certain amount of money. What do you think about that? Like you said, it's a uh, government overreach, and yeah. we already pay with our income tax. tax. So, yeah, you know. <laughs> I think you're right, and I think your point is good, that young people feel manipulated and whipsawed by that one way or another. Um, today's uh, show is sponsored by the Patriot Gold Group. And when we come back, we're going to talk in depth with John Jordan, who is an attorney, a close friend. You've heard him on the show before. He's from California. He's a brilliant brilliant political pundit, but more importantly, a really brilliant legal mind. And I want to talk to him about how he feels about these indictments of Trump and these cases and what he sees as the likely legal outcome. America, we are endowed by our creator, with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come, find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu. This is 77 WABC, and this is the Dick Morris Show, presented by the Patriot Gold Group. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right, here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yes, so I'm here now, joined by John Jordan. Hi, John. Hey, John. Hi, Hi Dick. Good. Good to be here with you. Uh, John is on the board of governors of... Correct me, I don't have your bio in front of me, of the Hoover Institute, of the, I'm sorry, yep. yeah, fill, fill in the blanks for me. Yeah, I'm on the board of overseers at the Hoover Institute at Stanford, and I'm attorney, a Newsmax contributor, yeah. a former naval intelligence officer, and a winery owner. Yeah. Good wines, and, uh, too. And he's he's fluent in, I think, seven languages, or five, or something like that. I have never tested him out in Chinese, but he says he's fluent <laughs> Okay, so what we're going to talk about is the night the lights went out in Georgia. Exactly what the special prosecutor there has. Uh, the D.A. Willis, bloodstains on her hands. Oh, God. So, um, John, how do you think that this is going to play out legally? Start with the Georgia case. Well, the Georgia case is remarkable in the sense that there's 19 defendants. 
And Fanny Willis in her press conference said that she wanted to try them all together. This tells you a lot about the quote unquote legal mind of Fanny Willis, because you can't have 19 defendants. I mean, she basically said she wanted to trot them all out at the same time, try them together. Like a drug gang. Yeah, well, yeah. well I, my, what came to mind, actually, was, you know, what, you trot them all out in a cage, Soviet style? Yeah. I mean, that's Ugh. what they did. Like a and that's not how the system works. So she also said she wanted a speedy trial. Well, this, the right to a speedy trial constitutionally vests only in the defendant. She wanted an October trial date with 19 defendants. Well, you can't do that. Different defendants will, will move to sever their cases um, because there are oftentimes there are conflicts between them. And there's all kinds of uh, legal rules around that. And totally, try, totally different yeah, fact patterns. Completely different fact patterns and law that applies to them differently. So that's not really possible. Uh, so those are there's going to be a whole bunch of legal wrangling and pretrial maneuvering right. to, 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 to sort all of that out. Now, what all these defendants have in common is that Fannie Willis says that they participated in a uh, RICO, corrupt conspiracy, uh, to try to defraud the voters and elect Donald Trump and reverse the results of the election. Now, well, yeah, two, two big issues. First of all is her wide, her, overreach, overarching expansion of Georgia's RICO statute. Even CNN had some concerns about that in an analysis piece that came out day before yesterday. Under her reading of the RICO statute, you could have people charged and convicted of crimes when they didn't understand there was a criminal conspiracy. Mm. Uh, under, 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 if, you, if, you take this, if you take this to its logical conclusion. So the, as a matter of law, it wouldn't surprise me at all if there, if this was that part, that application of the RICO statute was struck down yeah. uh, in and, a pretrial and we, motion. And as I've read, uh, Andrew McCarthy, who I love from National Review, a former U.S. attorney, or assistant U.S. attorney, writes that to do a criminal conspiracy, there has to be a criminal aim that they were all part of. And the criminal aim that they would all be part of was to elect Donald Trump president. And there's no way that's a criminal act. And uh, that is the only thing that united them, that brought them together. And to allege that as a criminal conspiracy is a bit of a reach. Oh, it's more than a bit of a reach. It, it Actually, there's, it raises some serious constitutional issues as to whether or not, you know, the law requires, the Constitution, there's a significant case law that requires that defendants have notice of the law that know what it is or should know what it is. In this case, this under this reading of the RICO statute, uh, that is seriously in question and could and ought to be struck. This ought, this these counts ought to be stricken as a matter of law, and I think probably will be uh, by Georgia's appellate courts, um, possibly before before trial. Yeah, well, that's my question on timing. Uh, we said in one of the other shows you were on that uh, a. Um, uh, so you can file an interlocutory appeal, which means before you get to the main verdict, which you can appeal, you, you can appeal this issue. Uh, does this statute allow an interlocutory appeal on this issue? Yes, it does. Uh, you can, uh, under Georgia law, they can, they should be able to file an interlocutory appeal to the appellate court in Georgia. The, the, the level of court above the trial court, but below the Georgia Supreme Court. That would be the first stop on yeah. this. Well, and it wouldn't be surprising at all if that is that is stricken from the indictment. And it would take months for them to file that appeal for the court to hear it and for the court to rule, correct? Absolutely, yes, absolutely. The and, idea of an October trial date here is beyond fanciful. And while the court is considering it, the trial can't go forward. And there are other issues, you said, like severing the indictments. And as I understand it, Mark Meadows, the president's former chief of staff, wants the case against him at least, and maybe the others, to be removed to federal court. And then there'll also be venue questions. Can you get a fair trial in Georgia? And questions about any gag order that might be imposed. By the yeah, time you put all that together, is there a remote chance that this case could be tried before the election? It might be able to be tried before the election. That's possible. Not in October. Yeah. So, oh, oh, I mean, it, it, what about it, in the it, spring? 
it's possible in the spring. Even the spring would be awful quick. Uh, it, it might it's it, before the election is possible, but uh, but not but not but not certainly the, in 2023. Yeah, I know about 23. But do you think the 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 court first of all would the Supreme Court play any role in this at all? Uh, probably not, Dick. Um, the, unless there's a serious federal question. And the only federal questions that I, the, the issues that I can see that were, could, could be raised are the constitutionality of the uh, applicability of the RICO statute. That raises constitutional issues. For it to be removed to federal court, uh, it ha- there has to be a significant federal question yeah. involved. But there would be no standing for the Supreme Court to say, hey, look, we're in the middle of a presidential race. Do this after the race is over. Don't do it now. There's no law on that. There's no law on that specifically. The Supreme Court to grant a writ of certiorari, there's one of real two ways to do that. One is obviously it has to come through the federal appellate courts, um, and then it has and then it has to present a novel or significant question. The other way is a direct application for certiorari with the Supreme Court, and the bar for that is much higher. Given Justice Roberts' um, reluctance to tackle political questions, for it is unlikely that that second route would happen. Mm-hmm. And for it to go through the appellate courts, that would be that would take a significant amount of time. So that if the federal, if, if it is to be delayed beyond the election, if that were possible, it would have to be because of uh, of this of these, these issues wending their way through the federal system. It, and, and that's possible, but the, the very at the very soonest this could be dealt with. The, the trial date would be set with like late spring or early summer at the very soonest. Yeah. Now, then we get to the political question, which is my bailiwick. Uh, I did John McLaughlin and I did a poll last week where we asked people about the indictments and we lumped them together: the Georgia and the um, and the Smith indictment in Washington. And we said, first, do you think that how much of a role do you think politics played in this indictment? And uh, fifty and fifty one percent said it played a large role, and another nineteen percent said it played some role, and nineteen percent said it didn't play any role at all. So you have almost eighty percent that feel this indictment was in part political. And in all the stats I'm about to give you, when something gets over fifty. A red light should go off in your head because once you get a number over 50 in this political environment, it's a big deal. In my poll, Trump is leading Biden by 47 to 43. So when 51 percent of the voters say this indictment is largely political, that's very important. 56 percent of them say that it represents a double standard because of the way they're handling the Biden scandals and Hunter Biden. And Fifty-seven percent said that the Justice Department should stop focusing on Donald Trump and let the people decide who the next president ought to be. And that is the key word. Those are the key words. I spoke to Trump the day of his statement after the indict, after the arrest. I urged him to say the issue here is leave it with the people. Don't take this election out of the hands of the people, which is the attempt that they're making in this court. Don't don't take it out of their hands. Keep it in the control of the people of the United States. And that position gets almost 60 percent support, which means that a majority, which means that a significant number of Biden voters believe that. And I think that's going to be very, very important. John, what about the federal case? The federal cases, uh, the two of them. Uh, let's start with the, the uh, records one. Uh, first of all, the issue here is whether or not the Presidential Records Act applies. And again, this will be this will be a big part of that case will be decided pre-trial. Whenever uh, I hear that, the, John, sorry to interrupt you. Whenever I hear about the records case, I sort of stop listening because to me, it's nothing worse than an overdue library book. There, there's a statute. That's how the American people will see it too. Yeah, there's a statute uh, that says you have to return these documents. Okay. So maybe he broke the statute, but there's no allegation that he compromised the country or that he gave this material to any enemy or that it undermined national security. And absent that, that, what the hell is the big deal? 
there isn't one. And ultimately, this case will collapse when either the trial court, uh, Judge Cannon, or an appeals court decides that the Presidential Records Act applies, that a president can have, can have these records, classified or not. And whether declassified right. or not is not relevant to that. It's, it's the Presidential Records Act, which supersedes the Espionage Act mm. of 1970. And what, PRA, does the record, what does the Presidential Records Act say about the this? The Presidential Records Act basically provides that a president can remove and can have whatever documents he really wants within some limits in, in his possession post-presidency. And it was passed after, and this is important, the Espionage Act of 1917. And so what you have here is the PRA is in conflict in, in, important, in, in important ways with the Espionage Act upon which Jack Smith is relying. Now, so the question is the courts have to, re- have to resolve the conflict of those two statutes. And one of the biggest precepts of, concept of statutory construction that courts follow, the rules that courts follow when resolving this, is recency. Since the Presidential Records Act is in conflict with the Espionage Act, and the Presidential Records Act was passed subsequently, yeah. courts give like, deference like to the Like 70 years later. Yeah, yeah. Give, but exactly. But give deference to that because it presumes that Congress knew um, that it was in conflict with, with yeah. the uh, espionage, the previous act, in this case, the Espionage Act, and will say, hey, this was intended as an exception or a carve out. What is Jack Smith's position on this? He hasn't he hasn't he hasn't articulated one. I why mean, does he say the because why does he say the presidential record act doesn't apply? He doesn't really in his filings. OK, OK. He almost ignores it. OK. Now, uh, we'll go to a brief break. Can you hang with us, Sean? You bet. Okay. So when we come back, we're going to talk about the other federal case, the uh, case that alleges that Trump was trying to uh, change the results of an election. This is the Dick Morris Show with Doug DePiro and sponsored by the Patriot Gold Group. Stick around. This is the Dick Morris Show on 77 WABC. This is the Dick Morris Show, presented by the Patriot Gold Group on 77 WABC. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right, here I am stuck in the middle with you. We're here with John Jordan, uh, attorney par excellence, my go-to guy when it comes to legal situations and pretty good at political situations, too. John, what is the difference between the indictment Smith is bringing under federal law in Washington and the indictment that Fannie Wills brought under Georgia statute? Well, first of all, it's similar fact patterns, similar facts. The Georgia, the Georgia case basically deals with, which the allegations there deal with, among other things, the phone call between Trump and Raffensperger when he said supposedly, find me another 11,000, a few thousand votes. Uh, the, the, holding that aside, but it, the Georgia case deals specifically with that. The federal case deals with um, some very specious, um, specious allegations with regard to everything from electors to attempting, attempting to deprive uh, disenfranchised voters. There are four counts in the federal case. Interestingly enough, Alan Dershowitz, who's no friend of President Trump, yeah. who's a renowned constitutional lawyer, penned an op-ed where he says everything that Trump did is the same things we were doing in 2000 when I represented Al Gore. Yeah. Everything from challenging challenging ballots, utilizing the appellate process. And even in 2004, when President Bush beat John Kerry, there was an attempt by congressional Democrats to throw out Ohio's votes altogether. Now, let's go to the elector slate issue. As I understand that, uh, the as the cases were working their way through state court uh, through the, and the state legislature, the uh, Trump people said, okay, you, Mr. Legislature, are in charge of choosing the electors, and you're going to choose Biden electors because you think Biden carried the state. We think Trump carried the state, and we would like you to select instead Trump electors, and here's a slate of the 20 electors in Ohio and the 25 or whatever in Pennsylvania. And the legislature considered that and then rejected that. 
Why are they bringing criminal charges against the people on that slate of electors? Damned if I know, <laughs> because it doesn't make any sense. There was in 1960, this happened with the Democrats in Hawaii. Uh, merely submitting and contest case. Basically, what the Democrats are trying to do, and Jack Smith here, are trying to cont- is trying to criminalize contesting of an election. Yeah, and and, and they're saying that in terms of the electors, that they are guilty of forgery and fraud in oh, trying to masquerade as electors. Yeah, well, no, they weren't. They, they, see, that's that's part of the and that's a legal that's a legal sufficiency problem that the Democrat Jack Smith's going to have to overcome. To allege fraud, you have to show that you intentionally were or forgery that you were passing something among other things. You were passing something off, pretending representing it was one thing when in fact it was something else, and doing so knowingly right. and doing so in writing. They weren't pretending or misrepresenting anything. They were saying we think we won this. The Constitution specifically says that electors are chosen in a manner selected by the state legislature. The state legislature is the ultimate arbiter of federal elections, and they merely submitted them. They didn't pretend it was something it wasn't. They didn't lie. They didn't put signatures now, on there. That now was what, what are the other counts in the, indi- in the federal indictment? Well, the other the other one that's particularly that stood out was the um, was the depriving the uh, in, using an 1867 statute. Um, which was intended, uh, you know, in, the, in Reconstruction to ensure that, uh, you know, black people or other people weren't disenfranchised. Well, here, the Democrats tried to disenfranchise all of the voters in Ohio in 2004. And in this case, they weren't trying to disenfranchise or throw out any votes whatsoever. What they were trying to do is ensure a, a, a fair count because they had questions about it. Again, no different <clears throat> from what Al Gore did yeah. and uh, but, uh, Dave but, Boys and Alan Dershowitz in 2000. In but 2000. apart from that, this is an attempt to criminalize the advocacy of those who said the election was rigged, of yeah. those who said that it was. And, and then you combine that with the Georgia indictments, where the people who did the grunt work, the legwork, who went through each of the records, interviewed the voters, interviewed the inspectors, they have been indicted for criminally interfering in the election process, even yeah. though they were simply fact-finding. You would have made a great lawyer, Dick. Um, you might be one. It might have been one in a previous life because you raised <laughs> the other great constitutional issue. That, and this is what happens because Dick, I don't know if everybody knows this, but Dick's married to a very smart lawyer. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and Eileen has obviously taught you a lot along the way. There's another <laughs> constitutional issue which is common to the Jack Smith second indictments and the Georgia ones, and that is an infringement upon the Sixth Amendment right to counsel. Our system is necessarily adversarial, and as central to our legal system is that people can conf- talk freely with their attorneys, and and that is not discoverable, and it's not and it's not criminal conduct. The one ex- there is an exception called the crime fraud exception, upon which Jack uh, Jack Smith and, and and Fannie Willis rely in, uh, to the to, to an outrageous degree, to the point where they're criminalizing. You are talking to your lawyer. Crime fraud and, exceptions, I understand, says that if you if you tell your lawyer, I'm about to commit a crime, I'm about to murder somebody, uh, you have yeah. to tell the authorities, and that conversation is not privileged. It's not privileged. And they're claiming, and they're claiming what? Well, they're claiming that what they this was an enterprise, among other things, to break a series of laws, whether you know the Jack Smith federal statutes or the or the Georgia statutes. But but merely talking to your lawyer about contagion, but the idea is that you were en route to committing a crime, and right. and, and and there's an, and the case law on this is is kind of all over the place. Is, is but I suspect that if we we're to go down this route, if the federal court system allows these indictments to stand on these facts, it will eviscerate attorney-client privilege. And, and upend our criminal justice system and cause untold harm to millions of Americans because it'll, it'll have a chilling effect on lawyers. Yep. People won't be able to get the, the representation right. of the Constitution, Constitution and you, says that they should get. You told me that this would have a particular effect on poor people. Walk us through that. Well, yeah, it's going to have a, a, a particularly chilling effect on on, on people that seek the help, especially of public defenders who are government, who are paid by the government. Those are the first lawyers that are going to be chilled by this. So you have a lot of indigent people who need a government-paid lawyer who, because they're required, everybody's entitled to counsel, 
Um, but the, the right to counsel includes free and fair and open communications. And there's case law to this effect. Mm-hmm. So the, 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 the first lawyers that are going to be chilled and affect by this are the ones that are on government payrolls to begin with. Yeah. Now, so this is going to walk harm us through, a lot of walk us through the timing issues on the federal case. Uh, the federal cases probably will, are going the, the federal system, uh, <laughs> even with the so-called rocket docket in South Florida, is necessarily a little bit more is more is more cumbersome. You are going to have also an, a, a flurry of interlocutory appeals. What is the rocket so docket? It has to be resolved. So we're looking at any of these. I mean, what is the rocket docket, John? Pardon? What is the rocket docket? Well, the rocket docket is a say it has no legal significance, but it is a it is a term of art used, especially in in South Florida, where uh, cases tend to move pretty pretty quickly. A docket is obviously the record is the roster of upcoming cases. And so the the saying is, is that if they move really fast, it's a rocket docket. So go ahead. So so it, 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 it. it's possible that some of these cases may have trial initial trial dates set for next summer. It's possible. But looking at the whole big picture here, Dick, of all four indictments, both legally and politically, the high point, the high watermark for prosecutors, especially in these public cases, is when they bring down the indictments. They talk about, you know, they, they and, make the allegations and, the and they haven't yet been rebutted. Yeah. And they the haven't yet been attacked. Right. So they, they've had the high watermark both legally and in the court of public opinion. Now you're going to have, now the defense is going to be able to chip away at this. You're going to have a lot of these, a lot of these counts. In fact, some of these cases probably eviscerated yeah. as a matter of law. And the fact and that they're bringing so many of them means that they'll begin to be dismissed and that can have a cumulative effect. Yeah. Politically, we'll have a cumulative People start to see that these were struck down. Uh, you know, you know, significantly and whittled down also in a drip, drip, drip fashion, because it's all yeah. it's going to happen sequentially. It's not going to happen all at once because they're different cases in different ter- jurisdictions. But the public is going to be exposed to a lot of opinion, written opinions that are probably going to be very scathing of the yeah. prosecution um, ta- using terms like overreach, overbroad and unconstitutional. The American public is going to hear a lot of that. In the coming weeks and months. As now, in terms of judicial court. bias, in Georgia, you have a judge who absolutely is right next to a card-carrying communist. She, uh, she was, uh, she represented the Black Panthers. She, uh, she did, she's got all kinds of stuff from the left on her record. Um, will she be the one that rules on all of these interlocutory Initially, issues? Yes. Initially, yes. The, a lot of these issues of law about sufficiency, um, some of the initial constitutional arguments, they have to be raised. They will be have to be raised at the trial court level first. And so she's going to hear them and her ruling, as you suggest, her rulings are going to be predictable. But then they wind up and then it becomes harder for her. And then it becomes harder for the Democrats because then it goes in the Georgia case to the intermediate uh, Georgia appellate courts. Right. And that is a different animal. And that is where they solely look at the law. Well, and those are not. How, how soon will that happen? Uh, those appeals will probably, are probably being drafted and written now. I mean, those, yeah. those, well, first of all, the, the, it'll be the motions before the trial court are being drafted now and yeah. will be filed forthwith. Once she denies them, then there are, there's all, there's rules and gate, time gates and such. For it to be appealed to the intermediate, but it'll still be court. within the election window. At this point, yeah, it depends. Yeah. It, okay. it could still it could still be within the election window. So let's back up here and just put together what we have politically. You have an indictment here that close to sixty percent of the country thinks is politically motivated, and fifty five percent think it's double a double standard, and fifty six percent feel that the DOJ should get on with the election and get out of the way and stop telling the voters who the president should be. And in that environment, you have this records case uh, that really doesn't involve anything of consequence. It's a narrow statutory violation. You have the uh, Fannie, uh, the, the, the stripper case, where he basically Stormy. Just said, Stormy, where he said a payoff was a campaign expense, not a business expense, mm. or vice versa. That doesn't matter much. Then you have the Georgia case with the sprawling indictment, and you have the federal case with this indictment. 
and both of those cases will some of one of those cases might go to trial before the election, but there'll probably be a lot of appeals and procedural decisions that will shape it. And at the same time, there's this massive attitude by the public of distrust of it and, frankly, of commitment to Trump. It's notable that at what you aptly characterize as the prosecution's high point, high point, Trump gained two points against Biden, going from two ahead to four ahead. And there's one poll, Ipsos, that's reliable, that says he's six ahead. And uh, that would not indicate well for the future of this prosecution. No, well, this is going to age like sushi left out in this, uh, left out in this major thought. They've had well, their high watermark. They've had their mugshot. They've had their allegations, the unsealing of the indictments, which is basically allegations unchallenged. Yep. Now they're going to be challenged. It's going to be, it's going to be chipped away at drip, drip, drip. Yep. So that's, that's and, what the high watermark. So here's the, here's, I'm going to make a little news here for you, Dick, and throw you a little curveball here. I think that you're absolutely right that the, these, these poll numbers are going to represent a damn breaking pretty soon and the the biden administration is going to be in a fix and i think what they're going to do is the justice department is going to try to cut some sort of deal with trump where you know it's home confinement or maybe you don't run they're going to try to get out of this great he ain't going to bite he's not going to go near that no i know i didn't say i didn't say he should i want to make i just want to make sure that i think that they are going to try that because they're going to want a way out yeah Thank you, John. Well, thank you, John. This was great. It was very enlightening, and I'll use it a lot. Thank you. This was an honor, Dick Morris and John Jordan. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.